Heavenly Father, this passage in many ways seems a long way from us. And so we pray for your help. We pray that your spirit who inspired these words would so be at work in and among us this morning that we might hear your voice. In your son's name, amen. One of, um, one of the things we've mentioned before here, actually, is that it's a danger to think that we are truly rational beings. That is, if we have the evidence, then we will believe it. If we get enough evidence, then we will be persuaded by it. The problem is, it, it turns out, when it comes down to it, we're not actually that rational. Very often, when it comes down to it, we believe what we want to believe. We make our minds up already, or perhaps our hearts make their minds up, and then we find the evidence that backs up those desires. And anything that doesn't really work with that, then we will ignore them and get rid of them. So sometimes we think, maybe if you're a believer here, we think, well, if only my friends could see Jesus. If only they could spend time with him, speak to him, ask him their questions that I can't answer. And they could hear his answers, then they would have to be persuaded. They would have to believe, wouldn't they? And yet you look back in the Gospels and you see people acknowledging his miracles, but being wowed by them, but then questioning, well, where did this power come from to do these miracles? They saw the evidence, but they didn't want to be persuaded. Or you look back in the Gospels and you see people asking their questions. In fact, questions after questions after questions after questions with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Jesus answering them, it turns out they weren't really looking for an answer. They weren't really rational questions. They had decided in their hearts what they thought, what they wanted to do to him. They weren't looking for answers. They were looking for a way to kill him. And so he divided his audience. Jesus divided people. He divides people now. Maybe if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, I'd love to ask you, is there any evidence actually that I could give you that would make you believe? How rational are we? when it comes down to it. Can we trust our own hearts when we're presented with evidence? Jesus divides people. And so it should come as no surprise, really, that King David, the forerunner to Jesus, does exactly the same thing. You see exactly the same pattern. In fact, this passage, you see it in glorious technicolor. David's prominence and popularity is rocketing, but then people are divided as they respond to him. So if you're a note taker here, the first point is the rise of the true king. Now we've been certain for a few weeks now that Saul, following his not wanting to wait for Samuel, following his unauthorized sacrifice, do you remember? Following his subsequent Adam-like finger pointing at everybody else, blame shifting, and then not sitting under the word of God. Saul in one sense is it's He's on the way out. It is a long, slow, steady decline for Saul. At this point, he is the Lord's appointed king still, but he is not his anointed king. David is the anointed king, and he is waiting in the wings, ready to take on his role. And in chapter 18, as Christine read, it's this condensed story of David's rise in stature and popularity. He is rocketing. He's rather like that sort of Joseph character again that we mentioned last week with Goliath. Remember his brothers resent him, look down on him? 
And so David rises in prominence and fame and standing. He is the talk of the town wherever he goes. There are songs made about him. Whatever he does prospers. Whatever he does turns to the proverbial gold. And yet still perhaps rather like Joseph, he's got to be patient. Patient with his circumstances. He needs to be godly and righteous and beyond reproach. And so this idea of David's growing success, his rocketing, lies at the heart of the chapter. And what we'll do is we'll firstly track this, this rise, and then we'll track the various mixed responses that he receives. And there are key recurring words that we'll zoom in on, words and ideas that the writer seems to want us to latch onto so we don't miss the point. To so have a look down firstly, um, and the first one is this idea of success. Again, you get it again and again and again. So track it with me, verse 5. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. Or again, a bit further down, verse 14, 15. In everything he did, he, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Or again, verse 30. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as they often did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. So we're meant to spot there is success. Why is there success? It's not just his skill or his luck. You know, he wasn't one of those people who always seemed to fall on their feet. Do you know those kind of people? Do you have them in your life? The people who always seem to be all right in the end. The sun always seems to shine on them, whatever happens. It's not that. There is someone behind this success, and that someone is not David. It's because the Lord was with him. Again, you get this underlined three times. We're not meant to miss it. Verse 28, working backwards through the chapter, 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David. Verse 14, everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. Verse 12, this is the key one. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but it departed from Saul. So David rising in prominence, but Saul on the way out because the Lord was with David. And it pans out in military terms. It's striking. Do you, remember, do you remember the people wanted a king like the other nations, which partly meant a warrior king, a tall king, a military powerful king. And yet David is now the one taking the troops into battle. David is one, the one leading the people. So verse 13, Saul sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops, or 16 all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. There's, again, there's something not quite right. We've seen that in previous weeks. We've had sniffs of it. It's like Saul seems to be shirking his responsibility. He doesn't seem to act in the kingly kind of way. David is not yet king in actual terms. And actually, he's very careful throughout. He doesn't overreach. We'll think about this in a bit, but he is a man after the Lord's own heart. And so with that, perhaps comes a humility, which means he won't grab what is not his. He submits himself to the Lord's plan, even though in one sense we're left scratching our head thinking, why is Saul still there? What is Saul doing? More on that in a bit. He is the military leader now. He is leading the army into battle now. He's looking more and more like a king now, but he's... He's not a king yet, but he will be. And as of then, we would expect there are different responses from within Israel. There is a majority response. Simply put, 
he is loved. Again, that is the theme. That is a drumbeat that runs right through. As David's status grows, so he is the talk of the town. People love him. I mean, it's firstly, famously there in 1 to 3 with Jonathan, Saul's son. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now, we need to put into a lay-by briefly there and spend a few moments because people often misunderstand this friendship, claiming, well, there just has to be some kind of homosexual angle to it. It must be dodgy, they say. There are literally scores of books written on this topic. I think that's just plainly wrong. I think it says actually a lot about us and our society where we immediately assume because two men say they love each other, there must be a sexual element to it. Actually, that's something of a window or a mirror into our own hearts as a culture. The love word is used later on, I mean, in this chapter, to say all of Israel and Judah, how the nation loves David. Clearly, there's no sexual element there. But in our culture, where close friendship has so often been sexualized, so often when we think intimacy must always mean something more, then we get confused. People write books. Close friendship has been sexualized, but close friendship also is just so uncommon, maybe increasingly so. And maybe that's probably partly why we struggle with this. When David and Jonathan talk of this closeness, we just feel a bit uncomfortable. We're not used to it, largely because of social media, but we are a connected but a lonely people. We are connected to so many but known by so few. We go for sound bites and superficiality and banal conversations about the weather or, or the football rather than depth and honesty and friendship. This isn't just something I've made up either. In January of this year, you may remember, Theresa May appointed Tracy Crouch as the so-called Minister for Loneliness. Stats from that time said more than 9 million people in Britain, that's about 14% of the population, often or always feel lonely. Isn't that striking? We are a connected people, but a lonely people. It doesn't just affect mental health, but physical health as well. A couple of weeks ago, a study showed that the close link between loneliness and increase of risk from heart problems. Or on a slightly lighter note, this joke online recently. The huge miracle of Jesus that people miss is that he was a man in his early 30s with 12 close friends. There might be something in that. We are lonely. We are a connected people, but a lonely people. We weren't made to do life alone. The, the language used of David and Jonathan in verse 1, this, the one spirit, is literally knitted together. Think unity, proximity, care, other-centeredness. Jonathan, do you remember, was King Saul's own son, the warrior prince of Israel, the one most likely to inherit the throne from his dad. He's, he's heard of God's power, though, in David to slay Goliath. He's aware that David is God's choice to be king. And so his response is not one of suspicion, but of, of spiritual unity. It's not of fear or feeling threatened, but friendship. From here on in, together they are spiritual brothers. They've got each other's backs. 
And more than that, actually, verse 4, as it goes on, as Jonathan gives him clothes, weapons, robe, tunic, sword, bow and belt, this is, this is him symbolically relinquishing his position. Friendship is costly. It's putting what is best for someone else first before your needs and before their needs. Sorry, their needs. And so it's not the main point for us to consider this morning, but it is a good question maybe to to think about in home groups or to chat with someone this week. Do you feel lonely? Are you one of the 14%, one of the 9 million in our country? Do, Do you have friends, would you say? Do you see the need for friendship? How can we build friendships where we can talk about being one in spirit and not think it's dodgy? What do we do in a culture that is so connected but so lonely? How can we be different? Maybe that's one for coffee afterwards or home groups later in the week. So David is loved. Firstly, he's loved by Jonathan. Second, at least the loved word isn't used, but he is celebrated by the women, verse 6 to 7. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Not sure how the tune goes. But you see what they're getting at. Saul is not the military leader at the heart of their football terrace songs anymore. David... David is the one they sing about. David is the one on the posters. David is the military guy whom they all admire. So you get Jonathan, you get the women. And thirdly, you get Saul's daughter, Michal, in verse 20. Now, Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. There'll be more on her and Saul's plans in a bit. But then just finally, to top it all off, fourthly, he is loved by everyone, verse 16. That is the end of the chapter. All Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. As you probably spotted as it was read for us, we've already alluded to David's rise in prominence. There's another response, though. He is loved, but he's not just loved. There is one who does not love him, rather like Marmite. Marmite, which divides people with equally strong responses, David is hated as well. There's a majority response of love and a minority response of hate. Saul is the older brother at the prodigal's party. He is the damp squib. He is the outlier. And clearly, again, you get this mix of negative, toxic emotions going on through the passage. You get envy that we begin with. And that's then quickly followed by anger and insecurity. So verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? That then morphs into fear, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Verse 15, when Saul Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Verse 29, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. And then that fear seems to be acted out in two different ways. Um, Essentially, though, he tries to kill David. The first is not so much a plan, it just seems to be a moment of passion and madness. Verse 10, the the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. 
Saul had the spear in his hand, verse 11, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. A couple of thoughts on that. One, we don't need to worry, we said in previous weeks, too much about the Lord sending this evil spirit. Um, We said a couple of weeks ago, probably it's the best thing is to think of it in a sort of Job-type sense. An aspect of the Bible where we see God in charge, God as sovereign, and so allowing or not shutting the door to something bad happening. We said as well, it, it may not be evil, the bottom you get harmful, it may be kind of miserable or low, and it seems there's this music therapy that seems to happen. Um, God sovereignly allowing this to come to Saul. As he has walked out on the Lord, so the Lord sovereignly allows this. But the other interesting thing as well, I don't want to push this too far, but it's the fact that he throws a spear. More than once, in fact, you see him talking about a spear. Actually, it is the spear in the original. It's almost as if there might be a specific spear in mind. Why do I mention that? Because Goliath also had the spear. The same phrase seems to be used. Is it Goliath's spear? He would need to be pretty strong because it was pretty big, wasn't it? But if not, could it at least be that we are meant to see Saul as another kind of Goliath, an enemy within the people of God? An enemy that threatens the king of God even, threatening David. Because he is a threat to God's king. He will be a threat and a thorn to David for years and years to come. Goliath in one sense was pretty uncomplicated. It took 30 seconds really. A battle with a stone and that was it. But with Saul, I'm not entirely sure, but about 10 years of struggle. Back and forth and patience. Is Saul being painted as a kind of internal Goliath? Maybe. So some writers mention then, well, should we consider how to respond to enemies within the people of God? Was the Israelite giant more of an issue than the Philistine giant? And you can find no end of books on David and Goliath scenario, however right or wrong they might be. But are there books out there on the David and Saul scenario? How do we engage with, how do we deal with internal enemies? If there were books, what would they say? I don't know. Maybe this was something to do with what it meant to be a man after the Lord's own heart. We've seen he's not sought to usurp the Lord's appointed king. And I think pretty much with one possible slight exception, even though he had ample opportunity, David never attacks or seeks to harm Saul. David seems to always pay him respect, even though it's not due. He seems to avoid him rather than confronting him. What can we learn from the way David and Saul interact? From David's patience with this person, this internal Goliath. Again, maybe another one for home groups to chew that through together. So you see his hate, firstly, as he tries to kill him in passion with the spear. Secondly, he tries to kill him by this elaborate plan of giving him one of his daughters. Which, as a father with daughters, sounds awful, but anyway. Plan A is the eldest daughter. Verse 17, Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you in marriage, only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. 
For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. That is, he's seeking to charm David into reckless battles with the Philistines. You know, he doesn't tell him, but maybe he's thinking, you know, as payment for my daughter, David, as payment for your new status as the king's son-in-law, how about for your new father-in-law fighting some extra hard battles? And presumably then he's just counting on the law of averages, to put it crudely. The more time on the battlefield, the more likely he would come to a sticky end. In contrast, David is humble It's a no for Mirab, the older daughter. But it turns out her younger sister also has a bit of a crush on David, verse 20. And so he tries again. Verse 21, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. That is, with Saul's son-in-law on the field, then things could get far more dangerous for him. He'd be a marked man. They would go for him. And the payment for his daughter? Well, the grisly dowry that this poor shepherd boy can muster together, verse 25, if you're not too squeamish, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was for David to fall by the hands the Philistines and David says yes and actually he he doubles it he collects 200 it seems rather than 100 above and beyond the call of duty they are carefully counted in front of Saul and lo and behold we have a wedding on our hands Um, I think there are some engaged couples who aren't here so it's slightly less awkward this time it's a gruesome detail isn't it We're kind of slightly left scratching our heads thinking, what's going on here? In those days, it was a common way of bringing back evidence of the numbers of the enemy dead. For some, apparently it was hands. For some, it was heads. Um, For some, it was foreskins. Maybe a picture of, of cutting off and setting apart. These were people in the land who ought not be there. They were being removed, cut off. Regardless, what's going on is that Saul is trying to get David killed But what ends up happening is he is not killed. Actually, what ends up happening is that Saul ends the chapter in a worse place than when he began. And David's status again has rocketed. He has a status within the family of the king now, within Saul's family. And he has reputation. And what he said in verse 8 at the beginning seems to have an air of inevitability about it Saul speaks more than he knows they've credited David with tens of thousands he thought but me with only thousands what more can he get but the kingdom it's the right question Saul that's what will come for us as we finish I just want to consider two things though a bit more of what this means for us Um, two comments if you like one is a great question and the second is a great encouragement So the first question, the first question is this, how do we deal with those whom the Lord is blessing? That is, are we a Saul or a Jonathan? Are we a Saul or a Jonathan? What do I mean by that? I think the way we relate to that question shows something of what is going on in our hearts. Jonathan, upon realizing who David was, 
upon grasping David's place in God's plan, knows his place. He relinquishes his roles and his rights for the sake of the king. To, to quote his namesake, John the Baptist, as he encounters Jesus, he says, he must become greater and I must become less. Well, so Jonathan realizes he must become less so that David must become greater. Or are we like Saul? When we see God's blessing being poured out, it's easy to compare and to resent. We want what God has done for them. Why has the Lord blessed them like this? Why has he not blessed me like this? It's not fair, we say. I remember my first week at Theological College a little while ago, um, and it was the first Thursday of that first week, and we had chapel, as we always did. Um, and the speaker was an, um, an Australian who had come over, a guy called Mike Rater. Um, he may have written books that you've read. And he was talking about how our hearts can be resentful of God blessing other people. Um, and he said, if you don't know that, just wait until you start with the biblical languages. Wait until Greek and Hebrew begins. And you will rub shoulders with those who are absolutely brilliant. And lo and behold, Tom was amazing at languages. While the rest of us were on it for hours trying to pick up the grammar and the vocab, literally hours, it would take him ten minutes. In fact, he used to do it on his walk from his house into college. It was ten minutes. How do you do that? And through gritted teeth we prayed, thank you, Lord, for blessing people with gifts like that. But you know what it's like, don't you, to resent people because the Lord is blessing them. Because the Lord is showing them his grace. And so there's a question somewhere in this passage which says, are we a Saul or a Jonathan? When we see God at work in the lives of others, other churches, other networks, other ministries, do we rejoice with Jonathan or do we resent like Saul? As God pours out his blessing... What's our response? Because it reveals something of our hearts. So that's the question. The encouragement is this. The encouragement is, be encouraged because you cannot stop the final crowning of God's king. That is, there is a certainty for David about the end game. David knew that he was going to be king. He knew he had been anointed he knew because the Lord had told him. It had privately happened. There would be a public thing later on. And I take it, as the story unfolds this week and beyond, we'll see his patient, humble relationship with the Lord because he knows what come, what's coming. He can leave it to the Lord. And we're not David in this. But we do know where history is going. We do know what God cares about. We do know that his king finally will be seen to be king by all. Remember Ephesians 1 verse 10. Um, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Or Revelation 7 as we thought about um, back in the spring. Verse 9. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, that is the big picture. That is where it's going. That is the inevitability. And history might feel random at times and we watch the news and we're just scratching our heads and not quite sure what's going on. And we think, well, I wouldn't have done it this way. Is God really in control? Or we look at our lives and think, how do I do this, these day-to-day struggles? Or, or opposition. Opposition, as Ida was sharing with us in Bangladesh. It, it might be hard, but... But the plan is being worked out. And God's king will be seen to be king by all. The end game of him ruling and reigning and returning is inevitable. It is totally certain. We can't stop that happening. And because that's going to happen, because Jesus one day will be crowned and be seen to be king by all, then we can trust him. And we can keep going. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, those two thoughts at the end are both challenges for us and encouragements for us. We, we pray that we might be those who, who love it whenever you pour out your grace or, or at work in and through your people, whoever they are. Lord, where you bless others in ways that we would like to be blessed and we struggle with that, would you help us to trust you? Might we pray with John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus must become greater and we must become less. Might we stand with Jonathan, who was willing to relinquish all he had for the sake of your king. And yet, Lord, you know our pride, you know our insecurities, you know our confusion, you know our lack of trust. captivate us afresh that we might trust you more and we pray that we might be increasingly mindful of treasuring the future reality of the crowning of the Lord Jesus that hope that is to come would it shape who we are now would it shape how we live now would it shape our priorities And when we feel everything seems to be out of control, whether internationally or whether personally, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you because you are good. Thank you for the inevitability of Jesus coming back. Help us to live in the light of that. In his name, amen. We're going to respond now uh, with singing, singing glory to God. So please stand.